from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. We all understand short sleep and how that can be a problem. You're just not getting enough. Yeah. But, but long sleep is a little bit more complicated. And shown this, this U-shaped relationship where the short sleepers and the long sleepers seem to have problems with, um, with, with, their, with their thinking and memory over time. You build up a, you know, problems with reaction time, for instance, mm-hmm. and attention, but you may not perceive that you're as badly impaired um, as you actually are. I'm Sarah Fenske. If you're having trouble sleeping, you may want to pay attention to that. Of course, many Americans struggle with sleep, but a new study out of Washington University School of Medicine shows the big consequences that come with too little or too much sleep. The study was recently published in Brain, and it finds a clear link between both too much and too little sleep and cognitive decline. And joining us now with more information is Dr. Brendan Lucy. He's an associate professor of neurology and the director Director of the Wash U Sleep Medicine Center. Dr. Lucy, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So your study tracked cognitive function in older adults. How did this work? This study was part of a, a very large uh, trial that, or study that's been going on uh, since the 1980s. It's an observational study, meaning that participants are brought back for repeated assessments over time. And some of the the measures that are done are are cognitive tests. So looking at measures of memory and attention and other thinking and memory functions. Um, And these are done every year. Uh, As also part of that, the study, the the participants have um, markers for the changes in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, As individuals develop Alzheimer's disease, they can can develop plaques in the brain of amyloid, uh, the amyloid beta protein. Mm -hmm. They can also accumulate tau, and this leads to the cognitive symptoms associated with Alzheimer's disease. And um, uh, the participants also had a single sleep assessment as part of this project. And this, these were assessments that were done at home. They answer some questionnaires and keep a sleep log. But the, the primary uh, measure that we looked at is a forehead device Ooh. that measures brainwave activity over multiple nights at home. So we're able to look at um, if someone's uh, awake or asleep during the night, what stage of sleep they're in, because during, during the night we cycle through different sleep stages, such as rapid eye movement sleep is one that, that um, some of the listeners may have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're able to also look at other measures of, of sleep quality. So one of the things um, that we know about Alzheimer's is that poor sleep tends to be a symptom of it. Mm-hmm. So how do you separate out whether the Alzheimer's is causing the poor sleep or whether the poor sleep is, you get what I mean here, yeah. like how do you know yeah. what leads to what? No, that, that's an excellent question. And that's that's a major focus of the research that, that I'm doing at Washington University and many others both here and around the world. Um, uh, the a leading hypothesis is that it's it's a bi-directional relationship, meaning that sleep changes are both a marker for the, the 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 changes in the brain that we see with Alzheimer's disease, but also that sleep disturbances can be a risk factor hmm. for developing Alzheimer's disease, which which opens up the possibility that you know we could intervene with a sleep intervention and potentially 
change the trajectory, delay, or prevent the onset of Alzheimer's disease. So if I'm not getting enough sleep and you're able to intervene <laughs> and get me to sleep beautifully, that might actually hold Alzheimer's at bay? That's the that's a hypothesis that we're working on. We're a long way to bef before you know putting that into the clinic and being able to say if we intervene on this sleep problem that we can change that trajectory. But that's something that that um, we're working towards. Wow. So with this study, you're not just relying on people self-reporting, which we all know. Um, we have a tendency right. to just not really <laughs> know what's going on around us. You're looking at how much sleep people are actually getting, the quality of sleep they're getting. What would you say after looking at the, this, uh, you know, what do you now know about how that affects, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, one's brain? There, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at um, self-reported sleep time and mm -hmm. cognitive or, or memory performance, uh, thinking performance over time, and shown this, this U-shape relationship where the short sleepers and the long sleepers seem to have problems with, um, with, with, their, with their thinking and memory over time. Uh, what, what this study really added was the objective measures, the EEG brainwave measures of sleep and, um, and wake activity. And, and, and we also found this same relationship with the short sleepers and the long sleepers doing worse on the cognitive testing over time. Um, well, one thing I would say about the long sleepers is that they, they may be sleeping a long time, but I suspect that they're not doing quality time. Hmm. Um, I think we all understand short sleep and how that can be a problem. You're, you're just not getting enough. Yeah. But, but long sleep is a little bit more complicated. Um, it could be that someone has an untreated sleep disorder uh, a, a common one that I see in, in the sleep clinic is obstructive sleep apnea. And when it's untreated, uh, an individual may sleep a long period of time, uh, but, but they're not getting quality sleep because of the repeated breathing problems they have during sleep. And so the, I, the, the analogy I like to use is it's like they're skipping across the pond. So they're, they're, getting, you know, they're getting into the, the, the top layers of the water, the light stages of sleep, but they're missing out on those deeper stages. So even if they're doing the long time of sleep, they're, they're not getting those restorative sleep stages. So it sounds like my reaction to this should not be, oh, I might be sleeping too long. I think I need to just get up earlier just to keep my brain sharp. <laughs> That's not what you're recommending That's here. That's not what I'm recommending at all. And and the, the point that you brought up about the, the self-reported measures versus the um, the more objective brainwave measures that we use is, is there, there is a lot of evidence in the, in the scientific literature that objective measures um, uh, are, are usually lower than the self-reported measures. It, people overestimate how much sleep that they're getting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so this study really does hit home. This is important. Like, we can't ignore sleep. Yeah, I think you know. I, I think that we definitely can't afford uh, uh, um, avoid um, uh, sleep. It's it's essential. It's um, it's really critical to to health and impacts all aspects of of, of good health. So we want to hear your sleep questions. I'm actually going to kick things off with a sleep question that comes in from Eric, uh, who lives in Kirkwood. So lately I've been falling asleep with headphones in my ears listening to um, just some peaceful sounds and it works great and I fall asleep really easily. However, I wonder if there's actually, uh, if that's actually a harmful behavior in the long run. Um, I'm just curious about the possible ramifications of sleeping with earbuds in. Thanks. And that, again, is Eric, who lives mm -hmm. in Kirkwood. And I'm not sure if he means, you know, the physical act of having these earbuds in or the reliance on music in order to, to calm your brain down and go to sleep. But I'd be very curious to hear what you think of this. I, th I think it's very common that, that people listen to either uh, 
audiobooks or like the waves crashing, something that's very, very calming. Um, and uh, white noise makers, another thing that I, I think is a very common uh, tool that people use. Um, I, I, I don't know of any specific, there's no specific issue with, with using the sound and as a background noise, um, as long as it's, it's quiet and unobtrusive. I think um, I, I would encourage using more of a speaker in the room rather than the, the earbuds. I don't know that it's harmful per se, but you you know ideally you want it in the in the background and it's it's more s sort of soothing and um, uh, you know earbuds potentially could be disruptive if you were to lay on them or they were to fall out. This could be bad yeah. for your ears yeah. or, or you yeah. could get strangled up. Right. Worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, if there's wires. Hopefully they're wireless. <laughs> Hopefully wireless. I'm, I'm showing my age here by right. assuming they have wires. <laughs> Well, we do want to hear your sleep questions. So I'm going to open the phone lines. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. And we're curious if you're finding ways that work. Like mm -hmm. what techniques have helped you turn around your sleeping as well? Maybe there's an app you use. Maybe you've changed some of your practices. And that also helps you. This doesn't have to be all negative, right? There's, <laughs> there's positive things out there. There are things that work. Um, we got a tweet from Amanda. Uh, she's the mother of a, a younger child, and mm. she said, I'm interested to learn just how many years you can get away with not sleeping <laughs> due to baby slash toddler wake-ups. Is this just one of those seasons of life disruptions? Am I good? Or should I decamp to a hotel immediately? I think the cognitive decline has her a little worried here. <laughs> I, th I, I think anyone who's <laughs> had children knows that it's it's very challenging um, to, to get sleep around around the, the child's sleep schedule. Mm. Um I, I, the, I would be reassured, reassuring that, that it does get better. The, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to testify <laughs> to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> you, that, you can pull out of that cycle. <laughs> but when the, when the, when the baby's first born, they're, they're not, they're not, they may not be on, you know, the, the same, um, schedule that we are. They're likely not to be maybe up during the night and sleeping during the day. That certainly was something that I, that I experienced. They're also going to be much more fragmented up, up, up much more frequently. And I think that, um, in, in the short run, you know, if there's, uh, you know, hopefully there's additional help in terms of to allow um, her to get, so to she get gets sleep some that sleep. she needs, yeah. right, exactly. Um, but in terms of the, the, the long-term um, outcomes, it, I, wouldn't be as, I wouldn't be concerned about the, the, the cognitive impairment getting Alzheimer's disease at that young age, um, you know, relative to when Alzheimer's disease would usually begin. This I, period is probably not doing permanent damage as long as she can, like, not be behind the wheel of a car, for example. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, exactly. so it's something to Those take seriously, changes. but that's right. not going to be something where she's going to feel this 50 years later. Right. Okay. Well, that is good. I do feel that once I started sleeping better, which happened for me about six months ago after my kids started <laughs> sleeping, it was just like night and day. I feel like I'm back to my old self. That's right. that's what one should expect scientifically as well. Yeah. yeah I, I think as, as you're able to get more consolidated sleep where you're getting a block of time where you, you can sleep in uninterrupted, that, mm -hmm. that you would resume to have um, that restorative quality. Um, I'm going to go to the phone lines. Robin is calling from Clayton. Um, Robin, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Just a simple question with the stress of COVID. And I know um, the use of AIDS like melatonin and Ambien have become more common. I'm just curious what kind of impact they have on the quality of sleep, but also, you know, the, the cognitive functioning outcome. Uh, particularly the ambient. I know melatonin is kind of a natural um, process we have to some degree anyway, but 
Yeah, thank you for that, Robin. I think that's a great question. Dr. Mm-hmm. Lucy? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the, the problems with from COVID um, impacting sleep-wake, normal sleep-wake activity have been just just enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, th- there's multiple reasons for that, the social isolation, um, the, the invasion of uh, uh, work potentially into into the the home hours, uh, having to have ki- children at home for school, <laughs> disrupting when you can do your work, um, and 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 sleep aids um, are sometimes something that is that that individuals need. As far as as medications like Ambien, th- those are best used for short term um, insomnia, where someone can't get to sleep or can't stay asleep, um, and and for longer term uh, treatment of, of insomnia, there, there's a therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is really trying to get to the, uh, the, the, the cause of, of what may be, may be keeping you up. For instance, are you worrying about things in, in bed, which is very mm-hmm. common because when we're in bed, it's one of the few times that we're you know, alone and it's quiet sometimes and we can really think about things that have happened during the day or things that are sometimes happening Sometimes you think tomorrow. about terrible things right, and right. start getting anxious. Working on your sleep schedule, yeah. uh, helping you relax around bedtime and really improve those those habits. Um, melatonin um, is also an effective sleep, sleep aid, um, but it, it's, it's best used uh, fairly early in the evening. Many patients that I see are taking it uh, later, you know, closer to their bedtime, say at 11 o'clock at night. But but if you were going to take it, it would you'd want to take it earlier, say around 8 o'clock in the evening, because you're trying to increase the, the rise in your blood of melatonin. Um, but you can have the same the same issues with all of these aids, where there's a tolerance that builds up, and when you take them away, it can make the insomnia worse. And so, I would primarily recommend them um, under the supervision of your doctor, you know, to be used for short term. Short term, yeah. okay, that's critical. Robin, thank you for that question. I'm going to go back to the phone lines. Kathy is calling from Webster Groves. Uh, Kathy, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Thanks for having me on. Um, so, since I have gone through menopause. I don't seem to sleep as well. I mean, I had the disruptive sleep, of course, when I had kids, but um, I wake up at least twice in the middle of the night needing to use the bathroom, and then I'm able to fall back to sleep um, without a problem, but I don't feel like I'm getting a great night's sleep because I get up at least twice. Yeah, Kathy. And I, I actually... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, and I, I try to not drink a lot of water before bed. Um and, you know, reduce the amount that I'm drinking throughout the evening, but it doesn't seem to help. Hmm. Kathy, that sounds like a frustrating problem. Dr. Lucy? That sounds like a very frustrating problem. I, uh, what, what I, what, what, one marker that I always, or one thing I always like to ask patients when I see them is, you know, how are they feeling during the day? How is the sleep disruption, um, you know, impacting the, day, the daytime function? And it sounds like it's potentially, you know, um, you know very disruptive to to, to her, and I, I would, I would definitely encourage her to, to see her physician, potentially be evaluated for um, uh, uh, for sleep disorders by by a sleep physician. There are a number of sleep disorders that that, that become more common as we get older. For instance, obstructive sleep apnea that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and 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 
some some individuals will wake up having to use the restroom or thinking that they have to use the restroom, but it's the breathing events that have you know woken them up, and they and and then they have to go to the bathroom, and they think that's what woke them up. And um, it's not that. It's, yeah, it's a breathing problem. Right, right. And treating the obstructive sleep apnea with therapies like. Um, CPAP therapy, where you wear a mask and you breathe air at a higher pressure than the air in, in the atmosphere, uh, you know, can in, can in many instances eliminate those nighttime arousals due to, um, uh, you know, ha- having to go to the bathroom. We're talking today to Dr. Brendan Lucy. He's an associate professor of neurology and the director of the WashU Sleep Medicine Center. We do have a number of other callers who want to join us, so I want to get right back to that. But um, you mentioned this is something people might want to talk to their doctor about. I understand at the Sleep Medicine Center, you're doing these sleep studies for people. You're actually mm-hmm. kind of getting to the bottom of, of what's happening here. So if somebody just has a primary care doctor and they're not that interested in this, there's specialists who can sort of dig into their sleep. Absolutely. I mean, the, when, when we see a patient at the sleep center, we're, we're trying to, to, to figure out what, what potential sleep problems that they could have and, and then to get them to the right either um, treatment, the right testing to, to figure out what the problem is, or if we've identified the problem at that visit, the, the, the correct treatment. So, for instance, I mentioned obstructive sleep apnea. If I see a patient and they're at risk for that, I do need to do a sleep study of some kind to determine how many breathing events they're having during the night um, per hour. Mm-hmm. And, and that's done with a study either at home, a home sleep apnea test, or a study in the sleep lab where we monitor brainwave activity to tell if someone's awake or asleep, and we monitor the airflow through the nose and the mouth, respiratory effort. We have actually bands that are around the chest and the abdomen, and we're able to to look at the t- different types of breathing events that people are having and determine how many are occurring per hour of sleep. And that's how we both diagnose it and determine the, the severity. Hmm. Let's go back to the phone line. Cedric is calling from Belleville. Uh, Cedric, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hey, how you doing, sir? Big fan. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, the question I had was, um, I've heard a lot of people with uh, some of a struggle with sleep and some people are so caught up on the eight hours of sleep that I heard sometimes that some people work better with a shorter sleep cycle than actually they don't actually need the eight hours. I was just trying to see how relevant and how is that even accurate. Cedric, that's a really good question there. Dr. Lucy? That's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, the, the seven and a half, eight hours of sleep per night is really in, uh, in the, the average that, that that's needed for a um, – for, for, for a person. And it is a, what we'd call a, a, a bell curve or a normal distribution where you have some individuals where shorter sleep times is what fits in with their, um, their needs, whereas there's other individuals who need to sleep longer. And I think I would, um, I would go, go by how you're feeling. You know, do you feel like your sleep is restorative? With one caveat, and that's research does, does show that when you're chronically sleep restricted, so let's say you need seven hours of sleep per night, eight hours of sleep per night, and you're only getting six, five and a half, that you, you build up, a, you know, problems with reaction time, for instance, mm-hmm. and attention, but you may not perceive that you're as badly impaired um, as you actually are. So a study from about 20 years ago, they measured the reaction time of individuals who are um, at different levels of sleep restriction. Like some got five hours of sleep a night, some got six hours of sleep a night. And they showed that, that the more sleep restricted you were, the worse your reaction times became. 
but your perception of how sleepy you were kind of went up and then flatlined. So you didn't perceive that you were as sleepy and performing as worse, as, as bad as you actually were. Interesting. So you don't yeah. want to get used to having too little sleep. Right. This could right. be a real problem. Right. We have time to squeeze in one more phone call. Let's go to Christina calling from Webster Groves. Uh, Christina, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I am a 63-year-old female, and within the last year, um, my sleep has gotten poor, and I really don't understand it other than perhaps it is my age, but I'll wake up really early in the morning, and sometimes I literally cannot go back to sleep. Sometimes I can, but um, I'm just wondering what this is all about, and maybe it's hormonal. I don't Christina, know. Christina, those are some really good questions. And it does seem like as we get older, we find ourselves waking up earlier mm-hmm. and earlier. And it's not good. What's going on there? It can be complicated. I mean, th- so there are a number of different changes that occur as we get older. Um, one one potential problem can be that your your internal clock begins to change and you you have to you, you your your normal sort of internal clock bedtime is earlier in the evening and so after you sleep your seven eight eight hours you end up waking up in the middle of middle of the night at say two or three in the morning and that can be very disruptive because you're going to sleep a lot earlier than um, you would like and obviously waking up a lot earlier when others are asleep um, there, but as I had said before there's a number of sleep disorders that become much more common as we get older obstructive sleep apnea restless leg syndrome and and you know, I think that if, if this is a a significant new problem and sleep's very disruptive. Again, I would encourage getting an evaluation. Um, Christina would want to rule out the more serious rule out, stuff. Right, so treatable sleep disorders. And if, if it's not one of those, it sounds like she'll be one of those early birds having dinner at 4.30. And <laughs> I'm not, not talking out of school about my parents today, but <laughs> this happens to people. So we put a, a poll up on Twitter, and it was interesting. I was curious if more people had trouble falling asleep or more people had trouble staying asleep. 29% said they can't fall asleep. 44% said they can't stay asleep. Mm-hmm. 27% said, who, me? I sleep great. There are those people out there. Maybe, Dr. Lucy, those are people who've been to your clinic. They, they've been healed. I mean, do you find that with treatment, people can sleep great even if they weren't historically great sleepers? Yeah, with treatment and then we identify a sleep sleep problem and get them get the right the right treatment started. Um, uh, people's sleep can really improve and and their quality of life uh, uh, also increase in terms of the activities during the day that they can do. Um, Obstructive sleep apnea again is a great example. Uh, many many individuals who start CPAP therapy and have significant sleep apnea, I mean they're just you know they they don't they don't go a night without those devices, hmm. whether they're traveling or so they really you know. do work. Right, right. Well, it's good to know there's hope out there. There are <laughs> people who are sleeping soundly in their beds. There are people who can get help. Um, and man, this topic is just so important. And so I guess it, you know the thought you want to leave us with today, I imagine it relates to cognitive decline. We want to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what what I encourage um, everyone to do is that they allow themselves enough time to sleep if they feel like their 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 sleep is is not restorative to seek out medical help and to be seen by a, by a sleep specialist and and potentially get you know whatever the problem may be identified and treated. Well, Dr. Brendan Lucy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. It was mixed and edited by Jane. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. 
St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.